Hello everyone and welcome to Walking with the Tengu, a podcast exploring classic texts for the modern martial artist. Today we finally start digging into the Tengu Geijutsuron, sometimes titled the Demon Sermon on the Martial Arts or the Tengu's Discourse on the Martial Arts. Let me uh, take a moment to say that I'm not terribly happy about translating Tengu as demon in this title. It's not wrong, but the word demon in English has a lot of baggage and negative connotations associated with it. So yes, the Tengu can often be malicious, but it's not necessarily a personification of evil as we think of demons in the West. I tend to think of the Tengu as being closer to one of the nature spirits in Western mythology, not good per se, proud and easily offended, but in the end more a chaotic force than one of pure evil. As usual, I highly recommend you pick up a copy of the Tengu Geijutsu Ron for yourself. My favorite is William Scott Wilson's translation, and to be fair, it's the only one I'm aware of. I've included a link in the show notes. What really makes Mr. Wilson's version stand out is that it's not just a translation, but also has his invaluable footnotes that draw on his immense knowledge of both Chinese and Japanese linguistics, history, and philosophy. I always have two bookmarks in his books because I've got one in the footnotes and one where I'm actually reading it, constantly flipping back and forth. These stories would be much harder to understand without his incredible work, and I cannot recommend his translations enough. If it's a work translated by William Scott Wilson, buy it. Alright, so in this episode we're going to start with the preface. Yes, just the preface. We're not even going to start on the actual story. It's that good. The preface was written by Kanda Hakuryushi. We don't know exactly who this person was, but historically there was a series of professional storytellers using similar characters to the ones in this name, so I'm going to assume he's related. Now, the only kind of Edo period professional storytelling I'm familiar with is Rakugo. Some searching for Rakugo, the Kanda family name and the character for Haku, brings back quite a few results for other people. So I was unable to find anything about this particular person with a cursory Google search in Japanese. And if you happen to know more, please do let me know. Quite frankly, I didn't know they did things like prefaces before written work so long ago. I've got a few questions in my head about it. Was this an attempt to bring credibility to the work through a kind of third-party reference? Was this Kanda known in the world of martial arts of the time? Um, Or was this just the equivalent of getting a celebrity endorsement Um, you know, in this case, a famous storyteller. It also made me wonder about the state of publishing and what kind of reading audience would have read this work. I don't imagine there's much need to put a preface on this book if it was being written for just one specific reader, often as a commission to some rich or powerful member of the upper class. So after a little research, I was reminded that, in fact, literacy rates among the peasant classes in late Tokugawa Japan were, in fact, quite a bit higher than other parts of the world. Zen temples were involved in the education of children from all the classes. It wasn't mandatory, of course, but, you know, in fact, village leadership required a certain amount of literacy and mathematical ability. So the, I don't want to say peasant elites, but the, you know, the the leadership ranks or families within within the peasant villages um, would often send their children to these, these temples for education. So while I'm still uncertain as to the intended audience, I'm using air quotes here for the Tengu Geijutsuron, there does appear to have been a decent amount of literacy across all the classes when compared to other cultures. So what's so great about this preface? Beyond the usual praise for the author and accommodation to his work, Kanda provides some insightful commentary into the martial arts world of the 1700s that, quite frankly, could be referring to the martial arts world of today, which makes me wonder if, in fact, he had practiced some himself. 
So one quick comment before I start. Wherever you heard the, hear the word swordsmanship, feel free to fill in martial arts instead. Swordsmanship was the preeminent martial art of the time, so it's often used as a stand-in for all others, but rest assured there were plenty of other arts that this could have applied to. So, Kanda says, Nevertheless, in recent times, many gentlemen have been celebrated in the world because of their swordsmanship. One style is divided into 10,000 styles, and instructors teach their disciples one blindly following the other. Some lead their students on by teaching far-fetched principles, saying that if they study these things well, they will be able to rule heaven, earth, and the country. Others teach their students to manipulate their swords to the left and right, to the fore and to the rear, telling them that in doing so, one man will be able to oppose ten. Still others say that if the mind and chi are refined and made correct when confronted, one can without a doubt be victorious without even getting up from one's seat. What a lot of braying and crowing. Those who study such stuff receive and pass on these misconceptions, teaching their own disciples accordingly. As the common saying goes, if one dog howls a falsehood, 10,000 dogs will pass it on as truth. All right, so let's break this down piece by piece. The first sentence, which I'll relate again, is, Nevertheless, in recent times, many gentlemen have been celebrated in the world because of their swordsmanship. One style is divided into 10,000 styles, and instructors teach their disciples one blindly following the other. Kanda is sort of going to come back to this at the end, but this is a common issue when, uh, where there's a balance between passing on an art exactly as it was passed on to you, which will inevitably become stagnant at some point, or altering it and passing it on in another way that will inevitably become something else, potentially losing important lessons from earlier generations. An alternative that I've heard from a few sources is that while there may be general principles that get passed on, each generation has to rediscover the principles of their art and how to apply them for themselves. This can become a problem, though, in that if one starts to compromise in foundational principles, the whole structure can fall down. There is a learning methodology that comes up often in the Japanese martial arts called Shu-Ha-Ri. Shuhari is actually three words put together that describe different phrases of the learning process. Roughly translated, shu could be to keep, protect, or obey, and is representative of that early point in one's training where you have to adhere in many cases blindly to the principles of your art. Your training should focus on learning the fundamentals. Ha could be translated as to fall, detach, or stray, and is the period of your tradition where you break with tradition. This could be uh, when you start questioning why you do things a certain way in, in the fundamentals and start investigating alternatives. At this point, you have a decent enough grasp of the basics that you can start to experiment with them. Ri is sometimes translated as to break away, leave, or separate, and is the point where you no longer need to think about discrete, specific techniques and instead embody in an almost unthinking way the principles behind your art. This is where you no longer think about hitting a specific move, but instead may discover something new because you happen to be in a particular configuration for the first time, executing the principles of one's art in a way you've never expressed before. You're free from technique. There are problems that can arise, though, when one short-circuits this process. Uh, get This can get in the way of complete training, or if you start experimenting before one has a decent enough grasp of the fundamentals. And I suspect this is what Kanda is referring to here. In every art, we see students who end up questioning their teacher or their art and breaking away too early, 
declaring that they've found a better way to do things, and in some cases this may very well be true. However, as in Kanda's time, one runs the danger of taking one style, dividing it into innumerable derivative styles with partial or incomplete trainings, that just ends up leading other students astray in their blindness. This doesn't have to end as a horrible thing, of course. If I maybe indulged a silly example here, I think of Star Wars, probably more than I should, but as a metaphorical object lesson in The Empire Strikes Back, Luke Skywalker, after having dreams and visions of his friends in pain and possibly dying, decides to cut his training short. Yoda and Obi-Wan Kenobi both implore him to stay and complete his training, but Luke, in his hubris, thinks he's learned enough and leaves promising to return. Obviously, we don't know how things would have turned out if he had stayed, but Luke has to learn some lessons the hard way, where if he had stayed and completed his training, he may have had a better time in the upcoming conflicts. So, just because someone breaks off and establishes their own style isn't necessarily a bad thing, but one should be very careful, as it's entirely probable that there is more one needs to learn before breaking, and being sure that you're not breaking away too soon may save you from having to learn some lessons the hard way. On the other hand, I think it is also inevitable that one has to break away at some point. You need to start seeing the weak spots in your art, do some cross-training, or travel around training at different schools. Getting a different perspective can help you fill in the holes and possibly discover holes you've never even knew were there. Alright, moving on. The next section is, Some lead their students on by teaching far-fetched principles, saying that if they study these things well, they will be able to rule heaven, earth, and the country. Others teach their students to manipulate their swords to the left and right, to the fore and to the rear, telling them that in doing so, one man will be able to oppose ten. Alright, so this is pretty straightforward in my estimation. We see this time and again, especially in this age of information in YouTube. Someone comes along, claim they've got the easy, simple path to self-defense, or that if you just learn fill-in-the-blank system, you'll be able to master any number of opponents. It's kind of funny that even back then they had the same problems. Alright, so continuing on. Still others say that if the mind and chi are refined and made correct... When confronted, one can without a doubt be victorious without even getting up from one's seat. What a lot of braying and crowing. This to me is pretty funny. In today's age, we find <laughs> we still find people teaching no-touch knockouts, chi blasts, and other nonsense. No matter the point in history, levels of education, access to information, people have always wanted the shortcut to magical answers and been met with charlatans willing to sell them what they want. The last bit is, those who study such stuff receive and pass on these misconceptions, teaching their own disciples accordingly. As the common saying goes, if one dog howls a falsehood, ten thousand dogs will pass it on as truth. There is so much truth in this. It's easy to find some interesting move of the week and think you've found something amazing that you'll try out the next time you train, or is the 100% unbeatable answer to a problem. When not honestly testing the training, this can lead one down a path of falsehood, eventually passing it on to others, especially if you're a teacher with students. We should all be much more careful, guard our tongues, and be rigorous in our testing and honesty about our training, lifting it up and looking at it from all faucets, rather than looking clearly at one and declaring it a sound and complete idea. Let us not be the ones howling a falsehood that gets passed on as truth to 10,000 others.
There's quite a lot to unpack here in just a tiny slice of the preface, and trust me, there's a lot more where that came from. So, as you'll hear me say time and again, I'd really recommend picking this book up and reading it for yourself. That's all for today. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review or rating wherever you find your podcasts so as to help the show reach more people like yourself. You can find us on social media, and if you'd like to hear more, go to patreon.com slash walkingtengu to help cover the cost of making this podcast. Even the smallest amount helps. If you want to buy one of these books, check out our reading list at walkingtengu.wix, that's w-i-x dot com slash tengu. You'll need to scroll down to the entry titled reading list, but by buying a book through those links, you'll also be able to support the show. Thank you for listening, and talk to you again soon.